Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Participant readings are always a lit fest treat. This year is no different. Listen in on this first of three installations of the LitFest Participants Reading. A spectrum of work showcases the depth and variety of the Lighthouse community of writers. Welcome, everybody, to the first participant reading of the 2014 LitFest. Welcome. There's going to be three of them, and J.D. has come to see if he can compete with me in this, because he's going (laughs) to emcee the next two. (laughs) Tonight is a girl power night. We have either nine or ten women reading, I guess, in uh, publishing. One woman to every eight men published. And tonight you'll see that that's not a very fair st- statistic. Um, see, so you're in for a treat tonight, especially because it's all these wonderful, energetic women. And the first woman tonight is Christy Bailey. I met Christy. I met Christy a couple years ago at the Jennifer Davis Intensive Weekend. And first I got to find out what a great writer she was, so I kind of started doing this when she walked in the room. And then I found out she was a triathlon athlete. So then I started doing this, and I didn't know her very well. And then one night she invited me to a uh, margarita slush party, and I thought, Christy Bailey invited me. (laughs) And so now I only have to go that far. So I'm happy to introduce my friend, Christy Bailey. <laughs> Are we supposed to sit in this big chair? or? Thank you for coming out tonight, everyone. I am um, being a little bit of a rule breaker tonight, so Beth asked us to submit a bio, and I did not, so I got that instead, which is probably way better than anything I could have submitted. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and then I went to uh, Steve Ullman's Riveting Scenes workshop yesterday, and he talked about how to write a riveting scene, and what I picked out was the opposite of what he said was a riveting scene. So um, <laughs> hopefully it'll work. Uh, anyway, so um, also we got a lot of advice about what kind of things we could do, and they said pick something from the beginning, and I, um, I picked something from the end of a chapter instead. So... So what you need to know, I usually don't have to do that because I usually pick from the beginning, is that I am in the middle of um, running my first half marathon. This is for Beth. And, um, and I am um, fairly new to not having hair. And so I, um, people around me don't know that I don't have hair. And I am wearing this crazy contraption that my mom sewed for me that's a baseball cap with a Velcro hair on it so that I look like I have hair. So, okay. Hundreds of people line 7th Street in downtown Louisville, the final stretch of the mini-marathon. From behind roped-off streets, from open office windows and restaurant patios, they cheer us on. Three cheers for my ladies, calls out Coach David from the sidelines. Woo-woo! Rumi and I whoop and holler, adding to the noise around us. David always offers a dose of confidence, just when I need it most. Two weeks ago, when I struggled to finish a 15K, the second race of our training program, I broke down. How would I ever run 13 miles if I could barely finish nine? David reminded me that I couldn't finish three when I started the program. 
trust the training, he said. Go, number 5229, calls a voice from the sidelines. Go, aqua girl, says another of my turquoise compression shorts. Looking good. I don't feel as though I look good. My skin is taut across my sweat-stained face. My head is an overripe garden tomato in the midday sun, red, hot, ready to burst open. I'm so warm, I feel feverish. I tell myself it's derby fever, a spike in adrenaline that makes the impossible seem possible. The flush on my face is a sign of achievement. You're almost there. My feet point out. My form is more penguin than gazelle. My quad quad muscles scream in protest, but I tell myself the aches mean I'm alive. I've come a long way, and I am almost there. At the 13-mile mark, someone calls out my time, but I don't retain it. All I can think is one more minute. I can do anything for a minute. You can do it! The cheers become louder and stronger the closer I get to the finish line. I wonder how life could be different if every aspect of my life was cheered on instead of criticized. When I see the finish line, yet another banner hanging over the street, I lift my legs higher and push myself harder. For the first time in a long time, I feel as if I'm not running from something, but running to it. Strings of sparkly gold fringe arc overhead, banners that feel like a crown over my head. Here we go, says Rumi, just as she kicks it up a notch. I force myself to keep up with her, my legs burning, my breathing heavy, my face as hot as fire. We finish the cross line, we cross the finish line together. Harumi Burns, 22200, Christy Bailey, 22200. I stumble into the chute next to Rumi where we high five over lane defining ropes. We did it, we say in unison. I'm barely moving, but my heart continues to race wildly. Adrenaline still rushes through my veins. Sweat clings to my face. I lick my upper lip, savoring the sweet and salty taste, reward and hard labor. Someone reaches out to me with a finisher's medal, a bronze square on a ribbon. I start to dip my head, but then I remember. My hair doesn't fasten to my scalp. I'd rather do it myself, I say, offering my palm instead. I maneuver the ribbon over my hat hair and around my own neck. I want to toss my ball cup into the air in celebration, pour water over my scalp, do a cartwheel, but I can't. I won't. I am fitter, stronger, healthier, happier. I feel accomplished, but I am alone with my hair loss. I still don't know how to accept my hairlessness. I still don't know how to talk about it. I know what you guys are thinking. Now you have to do this, too. <laughs> that was beautiful. Really beautiful. And, and I don't know what Steve, how Steve defines it. I don't know if he's here, but that was riveting. Thank you. Can I have scenes about other people? Oh, you, you, there were two of you there. The next reader is Leah Woodall. She's, all, she's a book project person, and she's also a friend. I have her notes here. Um, but the neat thing, there are several neat things about Leah. One of the neat things is if you want to get published, do it to the same journal she does because she has this really incredible knack. If she gets published in it, she has a friend in the same edition. <laughs> She's done it twice. She writes poignantly and with insight on a subject we can all relate to, family relationships, and with courage and generosity on subjects few of us will ever experience. 
her, her write-up is. She's a zombie-eyed, recovering, recovered attorney, memoirist, who's so past the truth. I'd like to introduce my friend Leah Woodall. So I, I have a blood vessel that's busted in my eye a few times. I, I mean, it's really the last client I had as an attorney, and I quit yesterday. So no, not really. <laughs> okay, this is called Fallout, a response to the fourth state of matter. Of all the essays I have read in the last six years, The Fourth State of Matter by Joanne Beard is probably my favorite, which I revisit annually this time for the class I am taking called Experimental Hybrid Forms. How to do so this time and still learn something more. I bring it to bed one night, ask my husband if I may read it to him. Sure, he says, an agreeable man. I know I am taking a risk with him. He may fall asleep at just the point where he should be paying more attention. He may disappoint me. I begin... It starts with the collie and the squirrels. He laughs often, and I am reassured that he is engaged. I'm enjoying his laughter, as I do often on Sunday mornings with the times. But sometimes he perturbs me with his vocalizations. I feel teased into leaving my own reading and asking him, What's so funny? I don't like to be in the dark. I'm enjoying his laughter, too, because I know what is coming, that he will be shocked into silence. The first time I read The Fourth State of Matter, I focused on the squirrels. I knew those squirrels, having had a family of squirrels in our house in D.C. in 1990. I was home on maternity leave, and they partied throughout the day, somewhere up in the attic. I opened closet after closet, looking for them, certain that I would discover a motley crew of goggled creatures sawing and hammering away. When my husband came home at night, they had gone to sleep, and he didn't believe that we needed an exterminator. (laughs) My husband loves our cats, but he is truly a dog person. I think of the philosophy that commercials sell more product when there is a dog in them. I think everyone will love this essay because there are dogs. When I'm reading, I try not to emphasize the sentences that are foreshadowing, but I feel like I have secret knowledge because I know. When I read about the husband, I wonder if my husband wonders if I ever thought that way about him. It was almost a coin toss whether we'd stay together after the kids left home, but this year we'll celebrate 27 years, and I've always liked his t-shirts because they reflect a political perspective we share. I can tell my husband is sorry for the collie, but I know the collie's misfortune will save the narrator's life. I love the chalkboard, but it reminds me of fifth grade when Sister Alvernia had wanted to impress a math lesson upon me when I'd missed because I was sick for a week. I raised my hand confidently and went to the blackboard. I was used to getting gold stars and angel stamps on my work and had turned toward her expecting praise. Instead, she smashed my head against my neatly drawn but incorrect computation. Chalk dust floated by my eyes. Of course, I love Chris, and each time I read this essay, I wonder what kind of love Joanne Beard had for Chris. To me, it is more than ambiguous. I look over at my husband with his eyes closed and begin to feel disappointed. Are you asleep? I ask. No, he says back. Good. 
This is the two-thirds point. It's about to get more interesting. We are all in the rooms and the buildings and the staircases with Gang Lu, although none of us really is. Thank goodness. Fallout. There is always more fallout than anyone can ever know. I am choking up as I read, but cover myself pretty convincingly. A page later, I am crying. When I read about Chris's mom going back to Germany and quietly killing herself, I think about Columbine, then close by, and the one mom who went to a pawn shop six months later, asked to see a particular gun, loaded it with bullets she'd brought with her. End of story. There might be an end to such a story, except there never is. When I finish reading The Fourth State of Matter to my husband, he is quiet. I am crying over the plasma paws and shards of fly wings suspended in amber. Do you remember this, I ask? I don't remember 1991 at all, even the war happening. It is the year my twin brother killed himself shortly after the new year. My husband takes out his iPad and Googles shooting Iowa, November 1st, 1991, physicist. He reads silently, then laughs awkwardly. Two weeks before, there was another mass murder, that time by a truck. We shake our heads. Sometimes that is all there is. Powerful essay, I say, and turn off the lights. Now you're all going to join the book project. <laughs> that was amazing, and, and it's so funny, something that happened so long ago that Joanne Baird brought to life, and then Leah brings to life, and it, it's something that impacts us still. So thank you for sharing. And I'm not sure how comfortable I felt in bed with you and your husband. <laughs> well, check it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ellen Nordberg is our third. Now, I haven't had a chance to meet Ellen, so I'm sure by next year I'll have all sorts of fun things to say. Um, she blogs at Treading the Twin Tsunami, Funny Tales of a Twin Mom, Water Aerobics Instructor. <laughs> and I got, I got to meet her, and I'm, I'm just really excited to introduce you to Ellen Norberg. I just want to say thanks to Beth and to everybody here at Lighthouse that makes this all possible. It's wonderful. I feel honored to be up here. This is a condensed um, essay called Lost and Found, so hopefully I haven't condensed it so much that you don't know what's happening. (laughs) Such a pretty girl, my grandfather says. It's 1998, he's 86, and dementia has taken most of his language. He recognizes me. I know this not because I think I am pretty, but because I know he believes it to be so. It has always been his role as handsome, charming patriarch to measure the beauty of his daughters and granddaughters. When I was in junior high, he'd line my sister, my aunt, my mom, and me up and guess our weight. (laughs) He was always right. My grandfather was a diamond salesman with impeccable hats, Cary Grant overcoats, and a gold signet ring. He knew how to entrance the female customers in his store, and he could make me feel like Cindy Crawford. I owe him my posture. Stand up straight, he'd say, placing his hands lovingly on my shoulders. Be proud to be tall. You look gorgeous. My boyfriend John and I are here to visit my grandparents in Boston. 
My grandfather takes me by the arm and tours me wordlessly through his possessions. I learned early from my grandfather to consider my appearance. At age eight, he and my mother discussed restricting my snacks. At 10, my grandfather warned me boys didn't date girls who chewed their nails. And by 12, he asked how many boyfriends I had. When I was young, I never thought much about his obsession with appearance. I liked the attention. As I got older, I worried about body image, joining Weight Watchers several times and eventually becoming a fitness instructor. This visit, I'm 34 years old and simply grateful my grandfather knows me. He tries to speak, but it's gibberish. He has lost his words. Come on, Dick, my grandmother scolds in her Catherine Hepburn Yankee accent. Enough of that. Come over here and sit down. High school valedictorian and prettiest in her class, she's still regal, caring for my grandfather now. She loses her patience, but never complains. My grandfather goes in for a nap, and my grandmother puts out cheese and crackers. We sit at the dining room table, and she quizzes John and me about the news. What do you think about President Clinton? My grandmother asks. I mean, it's not exactly the sort of thing you just get pressured into. She continues, slicing off pieces of cheese. Not something you get caught up in the heat of the moment doing. (laughs) She goes into the kitchen, and I look over at John, who is intently molding his cheddar. Is she talking about what I think she's talking about, I say? (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's Clinton and blowjobs, John mumbles without looking up. My grandmother returns with a pitcher of water. Graham, are we talking about blowjobs, I say? John coughs out cracker pieces onto his plate. Of course we are, my grandmother says, looking at me like I've just failed a test on how to spell the word cat. What did you think? My grandfather chooses this moment to make his entrance from the bedroom. He's wearing an immaculate, well-fitting black cotton turtleneck and nothing else. John continues coughing, begins to sneeze, and shields his face with a napkin. I mean, it's not the sort of thing that just happens, my grandmother continues, ice clinking as she pours. Annoyed at the lack of reception, my grandfather tightens his stomach and begins a little jig that jostles his private parts. He raises his hands above his head and snaps his fingers. My grandmother finally glances up at him in the doorway. Oh, hello there, she says. Why don't you head back in and put some pants on? (laughs) On the final day of our visit, we gather in the living room. John and my grandmother exchange an air hug. My grandfather, who has not uttered a clear statement since we arrived, pats John roughly on the belly he has acquired from business travel and enunciates perfectly. Can't you suck it in? My grandmother giggles uncharacteristically, and even John struggles with a smile. It's a comic moment, but it covers a sadder truth. The words Grandpa has found are used not to say, I love you, or thanks for coming, but to critique someone's gut. I stand up to my full height, pull my stomach in, and hug my grandfather goodbye. Thank you, Ellen. That's such a beautiful way of showing how one uses humor to heal. And the twists were really interesting. And I like your dance. (laughs) That was beautiful. Thank you. Up next, we have another book project here. Shauna Irvin.
And I didn't see her in here. Is she in here? Oh, look at her. <laughs> I first met her, and she reminded me of this last year when I was doing this. And I had no idea. I would just read them. I had no idea who anybody was. They were all faceless. And she wrote with such crisp detail about skating that I was certain I'd felt the chips from her ice skates hitting against me on my leg. It was just beautiful. Um, since then, I've gotten to know her pretty well, and she's in the Lighthouse Book Project. And her essay recently, uh, Becoming Superman's Mom, was published in Spring Issue, Spring Summer Issue of the Diverse Arts Project. Her six word memoir is, What Am I Doing Here Again? <laughs> I'd like to introduce Shauna Irvin. <laughs> feel big up here. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. Um, this is also breaking the rules a little bit like Christy. Um, this is from the very middle of my book, and it's in the middle of a chapter. So um, hopefully it doesn't need a whole lot of setup. It's, um, my memoir is about adopting my two kids from Korea. So this is um, one of the scenes in there. Um, from the shadows, I heard, Oma, Jim Boma, Oma. I peered hard and saw the outline of my son-to-be and foster parents. I recognized the dome of his head and toothless grin. He looked smaller than I thought he would at 20 pounds. His foster mom bounced him on her knee. Her teeth grinned. It's him, I said. It's him. I pulled Eric with a small jerk of my head. A short line of metal chairs lined the hallway where they waited. I sat next to the foster mother and looked at my baby. Here he was. Jim Bohm, I whispered. We had called him Andrew since first seeing his photo six months before, but there in Seoul in the Korean agency, watching him bounce on his foster mom's knee, smelling fish and cabbage, Andrew didn't feel right. I tried his Korean name a little louder. Jin Bohm. Oma, the foster mom said again to our baby, meaning mom. She pointed at me and touched my shoulder. I looked at her and saw her lip shaking, a tear running down her tanned and weathered cheek. She held him out toward me. He cringed and pulled back, put his head on her chest. Eric crossed and recrossed his legs behind me. I bent over and pulled out a blue cloth Sesame Street book from a bag. I pushed on a bulb under Big Bird's hand on the first page. It squawked. Andrew looked at me, the book, his foster mom, then back at the book. He reached out took it and put it in his mouth. His foster mom and I smiled at each other tentatively. I wanted to reach out and wipe the tear away that was drying on her wrinkled cheek. I wanted to tell her I was sorry I would take him away. I wanted to assure her I would take good care of this baby, that I already loved him. I didn't know any Korean. She didn't know any English. I watched Andrew push the book, push on the book, put it in his mouth. I rubbed my hands on my pants, then put them under my legs. She did it again, but I didn't feel the kids sweat. Um, <laughs> one thing I wanted to say about Shauna was that you have to get a, be a friend her on Facebook because her children are so beautiful. And, and she writes so beautifully about them, and I can't imagine that moment until now. <laughs> um, is Jacqueline here? Okay, we have one last. Um, 
The next person is Katie Bolin. And I met Katie last fall in Alexander Lumen's fiction workshop, and I thought, wow. <laughs> she just won a Stories on Stage competition, and recently she's been accepted in an MFA program at, L- at Louisiana, State, Louisiana State University. Anyway, from the work I was entrusted to read, I thought, my goodness, this is a star that's going to shine bright. And the story she's reading tonight, um, or the portion, she recently was on the top 25 finalist list for Glimmer Train, and that's a big deal. <laughs> they get like 8,000 entries a year. So this is what she's written about herself. Um, Katie Bolin used to live in Denver, now lives out of her car, and will soon move to Louisiana. She will stutter at least once during this reading. <laughs> Thank you, Beth. That was much too generous of you. And I definitely owe this story to her and many people who have heard this story because I've been at Lighthouse and I think this story came from Lighthouse in a lot of ways. But thank you. Uh, That was an awesome introduction. Um, All right. The night the boy fell. The night the boy fell from the sky, Adele hadn't said a word in 94 days. The last thing she said was, no, it's okay. She said it when the teenage bagger boy at the local supermarket went to grab her produce. She didn't like anyone other than herself organizing her bags. For 70 years, it was the same. Produce in one bag, frozen in another, dry goods in the last. At her local market in Omaha, the baggers knew not to bother Adele when she was in line. Here in Cleveland, it was harder to make the pattern stick. For six weeks, she visited the same market, stocking up on food and wine for her broken-hearted daughter, Darlene. Adele lined up at the same cashier on the same day, at the same time, all to make her new routine old. But there were too many different baggers who too quickly grabbed her peaches and onions, barehanded and sullen, and she hadn't been able to say, no, please, let me. On the last day Adele talked, she told the bagger, no, it's okay. And the relief of it, knowing that the regular was finally starting, made her smile as she carried her self-packed groceries the few blocks home. At the time, she didn't know she wasn't going to speak for months. At the time, she thought Cleveland was going to be the place where she spoke for days and weeks on end. At the time, it was a beginning. But while she was at the market, her precious, lovesick Darlene tied the rope and stood on the chair and fell to the living room floor, all because of the stupid, beer-sodden Bruce, who, six weeks earlier, had left Darlene for the young, more stupid Kayla. Adele walked into the apartment that day and saw her daughter, her Darlene, hanging, hung, and ran to her, the onions and peaches scattering across the floor, Adele grabbing at the cold body, her baby's body, and she cried out, please, Darlene, please. And when the medics came and asked if a Bruce Dillon should be contacted, Adele again said, no, it's okay. And no one could understand it, and she couldn't explain anything, so she never spoke of it, never spoke of anything. And for 94 days, that's how Adele lived. Wordless. Then one night, Adele was washing dishes, and a boy fell from the sky. 
As he streaked past her kitchen window, his jacket splayed out like wings. There was one fleeting moment of eye contact between them, the old woman in the kitchen and the boy from the sky. Later, Adele would say he seemed amused, his eyes laughing in that typical boyish way. But at the time, he looked at her, and she looked at him, and she said, It's okay. On the night the boy fell, Leanne quit her job, the job of the sticky hot kitchen of blank-faced customers of Damien. She had finally saved enough tips for the bus fare to Memphis. Leanne would never take a plane. You shoot a thing off a road and into the sky and then try to crash it back onto a different road. She always said, I'd rather be in the thing that just stays on the road. And she had Damien to thank for that, as much as she hated to admit it. Damien, his wide hands, his tight cook pants, the way his eyelashes fanned when he winked at her. Damien's job was reheating frozen burger patties and chopping up molding onions, but he was the son of the restaurant. One word from him made the whole shift spin. He told Leanne she had pillow lips, so Leanne bought a tube of bright pink lipstick. He said she would be prettier two inches higher, so she wore platform heels. He said he liked girls with natural hair, so she stopped using relaxers and let her real hair spring wild. Eventually, Damien approved. Her tips soon said the same. Girl, you look good. Leanne was giddy, laughing more, telling her roommate Alice, I think I finally met someone. But then Leanne stepped into the back room that night and saw Damien's tight cook pants pressed up against the tighter black pants of hostess Tyra. Damien's head was pressed into Tyra's neck, Tyra's long arms wrapped around his back, and when Tyra saw Leanne, she grinned at Leanne with her white picket fence teeth. Leanne closed her phone and ran out of the room, slamming the door on her way out, and told her manager, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And so the night the boy fell, the night she quit, Leanne ached for something cold and sharp, something bracing. She climbed her building stairs, pushed through a rusted trap door, and pulled herself onto the roof. It was a small gap of time where Cleveland experienced an autumn. The waves of snow would soon come and begin the long Ohio winter, but for now, Leanne only shivered. At five stories high, she could see the whole expanse of the city, a field of cold, dark buildings. Cleveland. Leanne hated it. She was going to get on that Memphis bus soon, the next day even, but there was still the boy in the alley, and that was enough for her to stay, for now. Leanne knew the boy in the alley was interested because Alice told her he was. Alice saw him walk by their apartment every night, half-smoked cigarette in his mouth, trench coat draped over his shoulders. Alice swore that he looked up to Leanne's room every time he walked by. He never looks at me, ever. I could be topless and halfway out the window, and he wouldn't blink at me. Your room will be dark, the blinds close, and he'll still look. Alice would drink her beer at this point, a long slug. Leanne would look into the alleyway and see nothing. Leanne always had work knives at the restaurant. She always had Damien. She had never met the boy in the alley. But, she thought, he must know her from somewhere. After all, strangers don't look in windows. And that night on the roof, she finally saw him. He was a block away. Leanne heard his shuffling from five flights up, could see the small glow from the end of his cigarette and his coat fluttering around his ankles. She would remember that the interaction was quick. She walked to the edge of the roof and leaned over the side of the building and shouted, Hey! And then the boy looked up and said, Hey! Leanne smiled. She couldn't see the boy's face in the shadows, but later she liked to think he smiled too. And the boy asked, How's the view? And Leanne said, great, even though it wasn't. And the boy asked, can I join you? 
And Leanne said, sure. And she didn't move away from the edge of the roof, didn't think to go down and open the side door. So when the boy flicked his cigarette aside and grabbed the drain pipe on the side of the building, Leanne didn't stop him. The boy put one hand above the other, tucked his feet in and out of the cracks of the rotting bricks, and climbed up the side of Leanne's building. He looked up at her the full few minutes before the fall, his eyes glinting against the security lights. She was sure he was smiling now, a big smile. So she smiled back and leaned further over the edge of the roof, waiting for him, no longer shivering. She remembered thinking, Damien never smiled like this. It happened slowly, soundlessly. Leanne not realizing what was going on until the boy was already falling, the drain pipe curving away from the building, pulled from the old bricks. His body hurtled to the ground, his jacket twisted around him like a robe, his arms extended like a god. It wasn't until she heard the muffled crunch of the boy hitting the ground that Leanne stopped smiling. Okay, if anybody figures out how she managed, and there's one more point of view in 3,000 words, to have three, three points of view, it's amazing. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. And I, I, I'm kind of proud of it because I helped with it. <laughs> Not helped, but I sat, I sat in there. <laughs> now, what I need to know is, would you guys, like we have one, two, three, four more people. You want to raise a hand? Do you want to have a break? Keep going? All right. First, next we have Tessa Cheek, who I just met tonight. And this is, this is the first time I'm meeting her. I believe you're from now. I'll be standing here again, and I'll have something personal to share. Um, right now, what I know is that Tessa is a reporter at the Colorado Independent. Her piece, The Dry Sea, was recently published in the, is it Hippocrates Reader? It is Hippocrat. I didn't want it to be. <laughs> but I'd like you to welcome Tessa Cheek. <laughs> Hi. Okay. I'm, I'm reading this off my phone, and it's going to be great. <laughs> and, God, it's small. Um, so I've made a snap decision to read this story. There is a dirty scene. So, hide your kids, hide your wives. (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, It's from the middle of a piece, so um, I guess basically all you need really to know is that um, we have this old narrator, his name is Simon, and he's in his early 80s, and he's remembering his his misspent youth, so he's full of regrets. Um, There was, for example, that time in southern Iowa when they were driving up from St. Louis for the detasseling, It might even have been just this pre-dawn hour that they shot through in Jack's grandpa's Oatsmobile. The thing was burgundy. Massive. They had four in the back and three up front, enough for a whole ride crew, which meant they were partying like people anticipating the silent intimacy of seasonal day labor. They had not done the work yet, so there was nothing to celebrate, and the celebration of nothingness is the brightest, hardest kind. Simon sat behind Jack, who always drove, and he laughed and he yelled about what should be played on the stereo. She sat beside him then, but he cannot think of her now, not when he is alone. He cannot think of her long brown thighs in their shorts, not her knees pinning the bottle of whiskey between them. She smokes a cigarette, and so does he. 
She is squashed in the middle of a pile of bodies, and so is he. He knows that he loves her, and he knows that it does not, he does not care when she puts the whiskey in her mouth and turns to kiss him, and it runs warm around his teeth and down his chin. The others are watching but pretending not to, or else not watching and pretending it's all very game and funny. There is a moment when she becomes shy. He can feel it. A moment right before she draws her face from so close to his. He feels now that he should have done something other with, than, with that moment than to bring his cigarette to his mouth while she turned away. He doesn't remember much of the detasseling. They tempered the long days by dipping into the rose to smoke, which is to say that they were very stoned the whole time. <laughs> if he remembers anything, it is something he made up later, and he knows that. He knows he makes up the memory of sitting beside her on the carrier in the harsh smell of her sweat. And later, in the fields where they camped with the Mexicans, he did not really help her take off her shirt. Her arms were not so sore that she could not raise them over her head even one more time. The sun burned her smooth skin into the shape of a reverse shirt, but he did not rub aloe on her back and her arms while she lay with her naked breasts against the dark, wet grass. He did not sweetly kiss the two hollows at the low of her spine, and there were not fireflies hissing and sparking, a million tremors in the July night. They did not later drop acid and then curl with just the tips of their toes and the tips of their noses touching for hours, riding out something too strong for both of them. Oh, but he does remember. He does remember her skin in so many shades of sun and not sun. He does remember tripping and thinking her skin is like Neapolitan ice cream, tan thighs, pink shoulders, white breasts and ribs and belly. He does remember how unbelievably long her hair was, going all the way down the middle of her back in a straight river that felt like corn silk. And he knew, because he'd felt a lot of corn silk. <laughs> he does remember how he left her, curled topless in the grass when Jack came running, holding a big stick on fire over his head. They lit another and another and another and ran naked with these long, flaming extensions of their arms until they came to a fat, slow river. The fire had drawn close to their hands, so tired from pulling tassels, and they threw their big man matches into the river one by one. He remembers how it felt like everything, how it felt like seeing the secret at the heart of everything, to hear the wood hit the river, hear it extinguished by a sigh, followed by so much silence. They stood there on the bank, not sure what to do now the fires were out. The silence ebbed away on so many insect noises. He and Jack, 19 years old, standing in the warm, beating heartland. And he does remember how surprisingly cold Jack's hand was, slipping between his ass cheeks. Yes, even Jack said, my hands are cold, and he put them between Simon's ass cheeks to warm them. Then Simon felt dirty and wanted to go in the river. They ran into the river shouting, shattering the night. Under the water, there were hands and sticks, and anything was permissible. Even Jack's fist around Simon's dick, slick with silt. The water bent and shone under a very clear sky with just so many goddamn stars, and the mud reached up around his ankles, and it seemed that it got inside him and started rising, that he was filling up with black, silky mud as, hand, as Jack's hand moved faster and faster. You're fucking the river, man, said Jack. You're going to come in this river, and you're Simon tadpoles that will swim its depths and know its lengths, and... He came so hard he collapsed down into the tepid water, and it closed over his head, and he decided that he wouldn't come up. He even used his hand around Jack's calf to hold himself under. But then Jack got wise to it and pulled him up onto the bank and kissed him and kissed him and banged childishly on his chest until Simon had to breathe again. Then they just sat there, bare-assed in the mud, waiting for the acid to wear off and for their minds, sweet mechanisms of forgetting, to work them over.
Wow, a little bit inhibited, aren't we? <laughs> I love that moment of the man matchsticks and then the twist. That was really beautiful and lyrical and magical. I like that. <laughs> Jeanette Matusiak. I put it, she, she wrote me a little note. She said, it's not Janet. <laughs> and I thought, I don't care about the Janet. How do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> but I did add an E in case my nerves made me say Janet. <laughs> so I'm just getting to know Jeanette. Um, and she's, she's really easy to like. Um, one fact I do have on her is that her essay of the too many to count it was, was published in the spring issue of Defunct an online literary journal with the masthead, including Robin Hemley, who was at LitFest. Um, so the name of her memoir is Can You Amazing? And I asked, where'd that come from? And she and her mom were watching Oprah. And Oprah's interviewing a blind man who summoned Everest. And are you going to tell this in your... No. Okay. <laughs> and she said, she, she and her mom sat wrapped with tears in our eyes. She said, watching, and she turned to me and said... Can you amazing? I think that's beautiful. <laughs> and what she's asked, what she's written for me to write for her, um, is Jeanette Matusiak is a I get it is a nonfiction writer working on a memoir called her about her Polish American upbringing called Can You Amazing? She humbly admits her mother is always right. <laughs> <laughs> I like to introduce her. Thank you, Beth. Uh, first, I have a quick public service announcement. Um, I know many of you, uh, for me, speaking for myself, uh, Lighthouse has really changed my life, and so many of the teachers here have inspired me. And I want to remind everybody that we have something called the Beacon Award, uh, which uh, honors an outstanding teacher of the year. And all you need to do is send an email uh, writing about whoever teacher has inspired you, why you think they should win it. Um, don't feel stifled that it needs to be on parchment paper and then you have to write it with a quill and that we're judging you on how you're writing it. Um, please just take a moment to honor the teachers that inspire us every day. It's really important and it's a great award. The teacher will get a really wonderful cash award as well as a trophy. So take the moment to do it. Go on, go online. Um, you'll see that it says Beacon Award on the drop-down box. There's an email for you to send it in. Um, I just can't encourage you enough to, to do that because I'm sure Lighthouse means to you what it means to me. So. consider myself a tall person, but so, um, so this is a, a flash nonfiction piece that I wrote in Richard Froud's class. Uh, it was an experimental hybrid, and this essay is about my mother, who uh, grew up in Poland and immigrated uh, to Massachusetts in the 60s, and it's called Battle Fatigue. If you are born a baby in Poland right as the war starts, and you don't see your father because he gets shipped off to Siberia and then released to serve in the war until he gets wounded and sent off to England to recover and sends letters from this place you've never seen, can never hope to, and comes home when you are 18 with his lame arm hanging by his side and his liver spotted from the bottle he liked drinking and lived only six months more, long enough to tell you, go to America, 
you grow up saying, I never knew my father. During that time he was gone, you were in that clapboard house on vast land that has been two countries, even though your pulse ran into the soil of one. The same soil where you grew rye and later stole your sister's pair of shoes because you didn't have any and shared and wanted to go to some dance, so you hid them out in the rye fields to wear them on your way out. But the rows all looked the same, and no matter how hard you tried to find your treasure, your sister's treasure, it felt like you lost it twice. This was the house you came back to 40 years later. We flew 4,131 miles to find the door boarded up. Not one to give up, you found a broken window and crawled through. Sacred heart of Jesus askew on the paper peeling wall. You showed me the enormous wood stove oven in the low hollow space next to it where sometimes the chickens kept warm in the winter. You tell me that your windows froze in beautiful patterns. It made me recall how when you see that wintry scene of the house in Dr. Zhivago, your voice is in wonderment. It was probably the only beautiful thing about winter. That low hollow space where the chickens kept warm is also where your brother hid when soldiers came looking for him and his gun. They wanted the gun, so they wanted your brother. The soldiers came for him a few times. One time, they didn't find him and threw your mother in the barn and threatened to set it on fire. You were afraid you'd never see her again. Another time, they came and beat him. Who's they, I asked. Germans? Russians? The underground? You shrugged and said, you think you could ask? You lived on land near deep woods where all sides converged. Soldiers took your food, whatever was valuable. They tried to take Hobble, your horse, but he wouldn't budge. Your mother would take you and your siblings to hide in the woods in the middle of the night. It was safer. You had your life. You stood in cow pee to keep your feet warm. That's one of the things you remember, one of the things you repeatedly have told me. That and the time you saw a young couple and wondered to yourself, I wonder if they know how hungry I am. You mentioned that memory only once. I'm confused by the amalgam of warring sides and my image of World War II in the movies, where it's very clear who the bad guys are. And I learned from you that when everything converged, it was chaos, chaos out there on that vast land. When I asked, did you save any Jews? Your eyes looked far and you said, we were all trying to save ourselves. When I think about writing like that, I think there are these beautiful moments in people's lives and other cultures that we wouldn't have if people like you weren't able to share them so beautifully and so eloquently. So thank you. That's really pretty. Okay, Susan Donato, this is, J.D., this is where I stole this from you, so anything I know about emceeing is, I thank you. I asked for everybody to give me a um, six-word memoir, and I was hoping Susanna wouldn't, so I'm going to share the one I made up. (laughs) It is, have vinyl, we'll rock and roll. (laughs) Um, 
she's another book project participant, and she's also a woman I've got a chance to know this last year. Uh, when I read her work, it expresses such deep universality that it doesn't matter which decade you came of age in, you will be transported back, feel what it was like for you as she shares what it was like for herself, and she does it often with great humor. Uh, she asked me to tell you. She always gets a little nostalgic this time of year as school ends. She attributes this anxiety to having prematurely left school six times during her education, not because she was a military brat, but because she was a, she was a PK, a preacher's kid. <laughs> I'd like you to welcome Susanna Donato. <laughs> Thank you, Beth. Your, your six-word memoir was lovely. <laughs> um, so um, I'm working on a, a book-length memoir that has a, lot, has a lot of music in it. I don't think there's any music in this piece, though. So there you have it. Um, and this is a sort of piece I've been messing around with, also from Richard Proud's hybrid class, so a couple people have heard it. And it's about the fall after my sixth premature leaving of school, which is when I dropped out of college. So it's called birthday. My 20th birthday was on Saturday of Labor Day weekend. It sounds like fake drama. I was all alone, but I was alone. My family a day's drive in either direction. My friends back in college. The mail brought two identical postcards with a black and white photo of workers installing a bronze of Venus gripping her bronze breasts. From Alan. I haven't seen any of your old buds, but I'm too busy staring at my feet. I brought too much of the West here with me. From Ginger. I think I saw Alan on the steps. He didn't recognize me. I pasted one on each side of my medicine cabinet mirror. For my birthday weekend, I had the loan of old Brian's VCR and a question. Given my fond memories of New York, how could I not have been happy there? I had an inkling that I wasn't the person I had intended to be. I had a pendulous sense of disappointment that I suspected might be the onset of adulthood. Before my birthday, I did this. Complained to everyone I knew about my upcoming lonely birthday. Rented Barton Fink breakfast at Tiffany's (laughs) when Harry met Sally. Bought Vogue and Glamour and Utney Reader. Set nail polish bottles on the table beside my bed next to Hemingway's collected short stories. (laughs) On my birthday, I got this. A card from Grandma Betty with a $50 check. A card from Grandma Lillian with a $50 check. (laughs) Awakened by a phone call, my stepfather Ken singing happy birthday. After Ken handed the phone to Mom, I got this. Tears. She'd gone into labor with me on Labor Day. Did I know? I knew. (laughs) I woke up this morning thinking about you and how you were my first baby. You'll understand someday. Your first baby is always special. In the weeks before my birthday, I had harangued mom by mail. I was scouring my history for the root of the torpor that had dragged me from New York to this shiny new solitude. I walked down to the river just thinking, mom said now on my birthday. I pictured her leaving the hill that shadowed their home, crossing the two-lane highway, passing the motel to where the water flashed beneath cottonwoods. I was sitting on a rock watching the water and it just hit me. My letter had recounted the saga, Torn Pants, and its sequel, Torn Pants 2, me in sixth grade, pushed down by a girl, bleeding, ripped. Mom yelling at me for wasting her money. Mom as a kid, a roller skating fall, torn shorts, her dad yelling at her for wasting his money. 
We seldom spoke about large matters. Doing so panicked me, even more this time because mom did not escape into tears at the end or evade culpability by demanding sympathy. This time, our spiderweb frail connection glimmered even in the darkest bewilderment of our difference. We hung up after not long. Later on my birthday, I got more phone calls from my friends and from my sister, who had gone to the Infermo High football game to be social. A group of kids asked if she was a boy or a girl. If I send you money, will you buy me some Doc Martens so I can at least look like I can kick the shit out of them, she asked. (laughs) I promised to buy them with my birthday money. She could pay me back. In the mail, I got a Smith CD, a Frida Kahlo poster, a t-shirt with an image of Botticelli's Venus being born from a cup of coffee among the waves. (laughs) Via FedEx, I had never received anything via FedEx, I got a birthday card from Alan with a parcel, bagels wrapped in a Columbia hot bagels bag, still fresh and labeled, the new sourdough bagel, the newest, the everything bagel, and the old standby, the pumpernickel that had sated me after our all-nighters. In the afternoon, I pushed aside Hemingway and read Anais Nin's diaries. I found this. Something has happened to all of us who have been uprooted. Human beings wither at first like plants at a rough change of climate. We look for places to sit where one is not rushed out, told to drink our coffee and leave as others are waiting for the table. We found an Italian espresso place on McDougal Street with only eight or ten small tables where Italians linger and play chess, and there we are allowed to sit and talk over a coffee. Sitting in my cow chair, bad espresso from my Mrs. Coffee at hand, I remembered this. Ivy and Dave at Cafe Reggio on McDougal Street. One coffee each, the leaves drying in our cups as we sat for hours. I do not think I knew this. Anais Nin's printing shop was on McDougal Street. Cafe Reggio is 220 feet away. I could not know this. In one year, Alan would be living four stories above Cafe Reggio. The night of my birthday, Leanne rang my buzzer after driving straight through from Kalamazoo. She was taking a year off from college, too. That night, we lingered for hours over coffee at Paris on the Platte. I had been alone. Then I was not alone. Not only not alone, the least alone, the most grateful, the most surprised, yet still alone. See what I mean? I think I've earned your trust tonight. I make these promises and they always come through. And I love the idea of Frida Kahlo, um, Anise Nen, and Botticelli. <laughs> I know so much more about you. <laughs> um, our last reader, unless Jacqueline showed up, no, is Tracy okay. <laughs> Wool Gannat. I just got a chance to meet her tonight. Um, I told her I'd be in a blue dress, and she told me she'd be short. And, so <laughs> and then she put heels on, and I changed clothes. <laughs> uh, Tracy writes short, short fiction and memoir, screenplays, and Facebook status updates. <laughs> this is my favorite. Her work has not been translated into 30 languages. <laughs> She lives in Denver. Please welcome Tracy Muganat. <laughs> Is this all right? Yeah. Um, I'm working on a, a suite of sh- very, very short pieces uh, about my experience living in Los Angeles in the 90s. Uh, this that whole series is called Drinking and Driving in Los Angeles, and this piece is called I Am a Movie Star. 
And by the way, this is a really tough act to follow. <laughs> Being last. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me just adjust. <laughs> All right. I am a movie star. The car is a 1980-something Audi-something or other with well over 100-something miles on it. My mom, a second owner of the car, had already driven it for about a 1,000 years before she sells it to me for two grand. I named the car Audi Sue and drive her from Denver to Los Angeles with two tail lights out, a rattle in the glove box, and long white streaks of robin scat from the roof all the way down the driver's window. I don't care. I have wheels. We make it back to my cottage in Echo Park without incident, and there we live together, Audi Sue and I, while I support her emotionally and physically, <laughs> pouring every meager cent I earn writing subtitles into the car's various aches and pains, her brake system, her transmission, her shitty electrical system, as well as her deep-seated psychological issues. <laughs> then... I leave the car at an off-site LAX parking lot while I take a quick trip to Chicago to visit and console my playwright brother, Mark, who is actually a waiter, in much the same way that I am a filmmaker, who is, in fact, an indentured servant for various production companies around town. I'm there visiting him, and turns out it's really me who needs consoling, knee-deep in debt in L.A., possibly making a habit of drinking too much white burgundy, Alone with my cat, Ed, no love life to speak of except for my steamy, dead-end, top-secret one with Wolf, an English Orthodox Jewish man who I just can't shake. <laughs> so here I am, back from Chi-Town, and it's midnight when we touch down. The airport is winding down, way down. The Starbucks in the terminal is closed. The C's chocolate cart is locked up. I take a quiet shuttle van to the off-site parking lot with a handful of other people. No one speaks a word, just stares at each other from our bench seats, bouncing through potholes, grim set jaws, cap teeth on edge. I found Audi Sue, load her up with my suitcase and get in. I start the car. Immediately, heat scorches my legs. I, I fumble for the heat switch, but it's already off. I press the gas to take off. The car barely moves. The car is definitely not accelerating. I pump the pedal and feel like Fred Flintstone trying to get a running start. We're going nowhere fast, but heat rises through the floor, through the soles of my shoes, searing my feet. Audi Sue and I move slowly out of the lot, and I think there ain't no way in hell this car is going to get onto the freeway. I swing left towards the airport and... Get into sorry, I'm so sorry. I swing left towards the airport and get into the passenger drop-off lane. I'll park at the curb, I think, run in and use a payphone. But who am I going to call? It's late. I don't have a lot of phone numbers on me, and Wolf won't pick up. Pan Am seems like a good place to stop. There's barely anyone here, just an old man in a pale blue shirt standing at curbside. And this is where everything goes into slow motion. The old man's mouth is moving at me, and his arms raise, waving in slow motion. He runs toward me like he's running through water. His pants swish around his skinny legs. Get out of your car! Your car's on fire! <laughs> I look behind me. 
Then back at the old man, me, I mouth at him. I don't utter a sound, just mouth, me, through the front windshield. I stab my finger at my chest in slow motion. I mouth again, me, my car? The old man nods. He flaps his arms like a flightless bird. He's nodding, nodding, (laughs) flapping with such force. I push open my door and step out into flames. At this point, everything is a slideshow. Click, a long line of patient, quiet people at the Pan Am ticket counter. Click, me at the counter, my mouth in a permanent Evard Monk, the scream pose. (laughs) Click, the red-haired Pan Am ticket agent stares at me with big, round, blue eyes. Click, a freeze frame of a young woman in Chicago attire, black tights, tight black skirt, vintage coat, running through the automatic exit door. That's me. Outside, the old man and I stare at the car. Bright orange and yellow flames dart out from underneath the car, tickling the sides, teasing. There's a whoosh sound, and now huge flames engulf the car. The old man and I step back. We touch hands for one second, involuntarily. Audi Sue is a car marshmallow, surrounded by fire, getting charred and becoming inedible. The old man and I brace for an explosion like you see on TV. A fire truck screams up the ramp, clunks to a stop. The firemen move so quickly I can't keep them straight, unwrapping hoses, spraying the car with a white foam. One guy rips open the back door and lugs out the entire back seat. I see my favorite pen is stuck to it. (laughs) He soaks it with chemicals. Another fireman opens up the trunk and pulls out my suitcase. Amazingly, it's unscathed. He looks at me. Is this yours? I nod. The fireman hands me my suitcase. Bad day, huh? He says. (laughs) The firemen leave. The car drips, drip, drip, drip while I stand there staring at it. A big black guy in an airport custodial uniform pushes his mop bucket outside. He mops the auto-opening door pads, and he keeps looking at me while he's doing that. He puts his mop in the wheeled bucket and pushes it towards me. Can I ask you something? He says. I nod. Are you a movie star? tell you're a filmmaker because I mean I had a picture in my head the whole time. It was like I was watching a movie. That was wonderful and you guys need to thank Katie because we were talking today and she said, do you have any more room? I've got this great writer friend and and that's how we got hooked up. So thank Katie for that reading as well. Um, I didn't forget anybody, right? No. Anybody else want to stand up and read? No. Thank you guys so much for coming for this first reading. It was so much fun to have you here, and I want to thank all of the brilliant writers. And next year I'll know you all. So, thank you. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. 
For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.